I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of Trade Guys, we discussed the Biden administration's meeting with top semiconductor companies, the IPEF frowned in Busan, and OECD Pillar 2. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. Bill, I know you're still recovering from the wild time you had at Trade Prom. How did it go? <laughs> it was the prom. I mean, everybody in trade was there. I think the moving moment was a real, I think, heartfelt salute to Angela Ellard, who received the Lifetime Achievement Award, had an, an extraordinarily strong and, and personal video endorsement from Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House and, and Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is how he knew Angela, and a whole bunch of former Ways and Means Committee staffers who had all worked with her or for her, depending upon what year it was, came up and it was really quite an outpouring of, of enthusiasm for her. And I think that was the high point. The other high point was that, you know, they give out an, a Lighthouse Award annually, uh, which is meant for somebody in trade who sort of operates behind the scenes and but gets a lot of things done. And this year's winner was Monica Whaley, which we know quite well at CSIS. Monica is the head of uh, the National Committee for APAC the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, based in Seattle. And Monica has been doing this for a long time, 20-plus years, and uh, is eminently deserving of the award. A little bit anomalous, because usually it goes to somebody in D.C., you know, a D.C. insider. Uh, and this time it didn't, but it was... Um, She's an unsung heroine of the Asia-Pacific trade. She's done, done a wonderful job over the years, very quietly and mostly behind the scenes. But uh, she's been a terrific... A contributor. That's great news. I didn't know that. It is usually behind the scenes people. Let me see who else. Jennifer Hillman was uh, got the Lifetime Achievement Award last year. Well, in 2010, it was a trade guy. So, in 2016, it was a trade guy. And 2010. Oh, you got it then. Well, we're yes. both winners. Cool. Indeed. There you have it. <laughs> and we're you before me. Yeah, I'm ancient history. <laughs> uh, I think we're both ancient. Uh, history <laughs> history sure. I don't know about. But um, the food was mediocre. The drinks were spectacular. A whole bunch of, uh, of embassies contributed liquor to the party. Uh, the Irish leading the way. It, it's always been the best happy hour in D.C. So Indeed. And there was a swag bag, which I've been... Tebow picked something out of it. And uh, uh, Jaffet, whom listeners will remember from... Previous podcast got his share, and I'm still trying to get rid of the rest of it. I ate the caramel corn. There's a few things left. Back in the day, my daughters had a fight to the death over the Aflac duck. So, oh, <laughs> didn't happen this time. Actually, Procter and Gamble uh, tossed in uh, deodorant. Well, that, that's good. <laughs> Where I could, yeah, I could probably make a joke about that, I suppose, but uh, I won't. One of those products everyone needs. <laughs> You'll get toothpaste next year. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, anyway, let's go on. Well, there's nothing better to do to celebrate this year's biggest trade schmooze fest and to talk about trade the very next day. So let's get into it. Our first topic is on chips and China, an alliteration that is constantly haunting the trade world right now. 
top U.S. chip company executives met with top Biden administration officials on Monday. Commerce Secretary Raimondo, National Economic Council Director Brainard, and National Security Council Director Jake Sullivan were among government officials meeting with these big players like Intel, Qualcomm, and NVIDIA. So trade guys, can you break down what they discussed and your take on whether these meetings will have any effect on U.S. policymaking targeting China's technology? Well, I wasn't there, and I suspect Scott wasn't either. That's for sure. And I talked to somebody who I thought would be there and who wasn't. But the sense I got was the executives made their case, which I'll get to in a minute, because it's the same case they've been making on and off for 20 years plus. Uh, I, my sense is they may have given the administration something to think about. I mean, I don't think it was a meeting designed to produce a decision. It was a meeting designed to have a conversation so they could express their views, uh, which means they may have bought themselves some time. But their argument is a simple one, and it's been uh, I've made it myself frequently, even though I'm not in that business, which is that um, basically they make a lot of money off of China, and they make a lot of money off of China selling legacy chips. You know, things that are not controlled and are not affected by the October 7th uh, rules. And that's money that they not only want, it's money they need to reinvest in the development of next generation technologies. So there's a, a cycle of research and development and manufacturing and production that, that goes on here. And running fast is an integral part of the administration's policy on technology generally. And I think their message was if you want us to run faster, you know, we need to be able to spend the money that will enable us to do that. You want it, maybe you're going to give us the money. And I'm sure they asked about the, the promote part of the promote and protect uh, slogan that, that the administration has used and how fast can you get the chips money out there. But even if they got checks tomorrow, that money is small compared to private sector investment that goes into R&D in this sector. So what they're really interested in is maintaining their ability to maintain their revenue targets. And China is a significant element in, for all of them. I think for NVIDIA, it's 30%, but I think for Qualcomm, it's more. And I think for Intel, it, I'm not sure, I think it may be more as well. And they're not the only ones. So that was the plea. And I think it's in response to the rumors that we've discussed before, which is that the department uh, may go beyond the October 7th rule and enlarge the controls to cover more things. And that will enlarge the revenue hit the companies are already taking. I think it's very important for the government as a whole to figure out what it wants and what it's actually trying to do here, because controls on tooling and the, and the most sophisticated IT chips is sensible from a national security standpoint. But when you look at the total market, particularly with legacy chips, there are a couple of good reasons to keep American firms or global firms engaged in China. One of them is that it is, it's in some ways gives China a little time, but, but it takes the pressure off what China is trying to do, which is to get the whole supply chain. We talked about it last week. They start off doing, the, doing sort of the dirty work at the end of the supply chain that the, the United States doesn't want to operate, like mining and refining rare earths. But they want the whole supply chain. They, they want the whole production chain to be Chinese. And by selling very efficiently produced and at scale legacy chips, that puts a market force against the Chinese basically excluding all American firms or all Western firms and uh, doing it themselves. 
The other thing is the companies themselves benefit from scale in R&D and in production efficiencies. And ultimately, when you start to restrict things like this, there's going to be an incentive for companies to devolve. You could take a, a global company and break it into pieces so that a U.S. entity, which would be a separate corporation, would, could do business in the U.S., a Chinese corporation could do business in China, but you lose scale. You lose the R&D capacity and the things that make that company sophisticated in the first place. So I think you've got to be careful here. The government needs to be careful about what they ask for because they might wind up hurting the industry more than they slow down China. Yeah, when this happened, we, <clears throat> we said there were three questions to look at. The effect on U.S. company revenues, which we've just been talking about. The effect on China and what it will cause them to do which Scott just commented on, because, you know, I don't think that it's changed their policy because I think they decided some time ago, uh, at least 2015, if not earlier, to develop their own independent technology because they regard the United States as, as unreliable. Um, and if anything, uh, this, though, will accelerate it and, and lead to the consequence that, that Scott described because it increases the, the, the incentive to develop their own products quicker because we're denying them uh, we're denying them ours. And then the third one, which we have yet to see, well, it's, which is beginning, but w which we're watching closely is the design out uh, issue and the, the extent to which we are encouraging third countries or companies in third countries to develop products that do not contain any American technology or components and are therefore not subject to our controls. And I think the conventional wisdom immediately after the October 7th rule was that that was impossible in the short run. And I think that was correct in the short run, but this is an industry that moves very fast mm. and the short run is only, you know, going to be a couple of years. So we need to watch that space because what we've done, same as what we did with communication satellites in the late nineties and early aughts is to create an incentive for companies to work around and basically find mm -hmm. ways to dispense with us. Uh, and that cuts into our market share in, in major ways down the road. So I think what the industry was saying, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of easy to say the industry is just, you know, trying to make more money, but it's a lot more complicated than that. What they're really trying to do is to preserve a revenue stream that will, you know, protect them as they develop future generations of technology. The Chinese envoy to Washington already announced that PRC would react to investment curbs uh, if the U.S. were to impose any. Um, so that's probably not the last we're hearing about the story and not the last time that we get to talk about it. Well, you know, they always say that, that they're going to retaliate and they usually do. So I, I, you don't want, I don't want to make light of it. They will find a way to do it. It's turned out in this particular case, it's been hard for them to find something that meets their main criterion, which is, you know, hurt us more than them. And they went after Micron, although in a, when you read the fine print, not everything that Micron sells, but a relatively small subset of Micron chips, the Chinese decided didn't meet their security standards, which I think they privately acknowledged was simply retaliation. And then they did this germanium gallium thing that we talked about in the last week or so. They'll probably find something else. But uh, so far, I, I stick with what I said the last time on this. These things are inconvenient, but they're not fatal. And I think that will continue to be the story. And that's the hope. Next, let's discuss the IPEF round in Busan, South Korea. Participants of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework met this past week in South Korea to hold 
the fourth in-person round of negotiations for the agreement. After making what the U.S. described as progress during the fourth round, IPEF members are eyeing agreements on trade, clean economy, and fair economy issues by November. So guys, can you walk us a little more through what happened in Busan? Nobody knows. They announced progress. We met a couple of days ago with one of the negotiators for one of the other countries who shall remain nameless. And he said the same thing. We made progress, but he couldn't really tell us much detail about what that progress was. There's, there's no text that's been revealed. Pillar two, which is a supply chain pillar, is pretty much done, but they say they're still say they're doing the so-called legal scrubbing, which is to go through the text and make sure everything is accurate and correct, but they haven't shown that to anybody yet. It sounds like they made some progress on the clean economy pillar, which really is, you know, when you strip away all the rhetoric, it comes down to, you know, how much money is the United States and other developed countries going to pay the developing countries to decarbonize? And in the United States case, not only how much, but how would we accomplish that? What instruments do we have in U.S. law that would enable us to provide that kind of support? Sounds like they're making progress there, but I have no details. It sounds like they're making progress on anti-corruption, but again, again, uh, no details. It was clear that Pillar 1 is lagging behind the other three, and it was also clear from multiple sources that it's lagging behind for two reasons. One, the United States is not pursuing some things that the business community wants them to pursue aggressively, you know, strong digital trade rules being one of them, and even some regulatory issues, I think apparently we're not pressing as hard as I think some people in the business community would like the United States to press. And some of the other governments in the, of the other parties are busy trying to put in exceptions and, uh, and weakenings for what is already there, which has led you know most commentators to conclude that it'll probably finish in November at the APEC summit uh, or thereabouts. They'll roll something out, but it's beginning to look more and more like it won't be very much because... There's more things being taken off the table than are being put on the table. So we'll see. I know, Scott, you have more insight than that? Well, look, I think it was unequivocally good for the airline and hospitality industry, right? Because a bunch of government officials paid to go to a meeting. And I'm sure they ate well and everything was fine. They got home. Bless them. All right. But for me, I'm having flashbacks to 2019. In 2019, President Trump decided he wanted to get himself some trade deals. And they went around to seven or eight countries, kind of randomly picked, and made these superficial agreements to talk about doing things in the future. And they held signing ceremonies, which which was basically a photo op equivalent of handing somebody the key to the city. You know, and and there was no substance to the agreements at all that anybody can recall. That was a a few years ago. None of us can even remember which countries were involved and what they did. I have a feeling that in 2027, this will be a trade trivia question. What did IPEF, which countries were involved and what what issues were discussed? I don't think anybody's going to know. And there'll be some photos back somewhere uh, that looked like somebody wins a fishing contest. But otherwise, it's kind of a non-event. It's because we're not asking for market access. There's not a, actually a negotiation for something tangible that benefits the economy. And so I'm having trouble getting excited about it. Although I, what I do note is in Asia last week, the United Kingdom joined the CBTPP. 
so last week, the United States had a meeting and the United Kingdom basically gained preferential market access for its exporters and joined the what's probably the gold standard of rulemaking uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Which government did better for its citizens? I think the one that got a, a binding agreement. So sorry for my, uh, my cynicism, but I'm having trouble really finding, figuring out why I should care about IPEF. Maybe I'm missing something, Bill. I would add, I think the view we've gotten actually from the foreigners as well as the Americans is it's going to succeed because, you know, the United States will, I think, do what it takes to make it succeed. And the, the foreign view is that, and I think this is true of, of probably all of the parties, we want the U.S. In the, in the region. We want the U.S. to be present and visible in the region. The CPT, CPTPP members want the U.S., still want the U.S. to come back into CPTPP. And I, we've had several people say, you know, there's a big chair that's empty right now, sort of waiting for you. That's plan A. But then they say, if IPEF is the best you can do, we're in. You know, we'll go along with it. We don't think there's much there, but we're not going to we're not going to walk away because we'll take what we can get under the circumstances. So it really it's more a missed opportunity than anything else. The other thing to keep in mind, though, which may change the equation a little bit, is the uh, uh, now the Senate has passed and sent to the president the Taiwan bill that the, the bill that we talked about previously that approves part one of the Taiwan agreement and then sets up rules for consideration of part two and, and requires part two to be submitted to the Congress. Significant assertion of congressional authority. And I think this will be followed by a similar bill on IPEF. And the Taiwan one passed overwhelmingly. Voice vote in the House, unanimous consent in the Senate. The administration hasn't said what they'll do to it yet, but I think that it would probably be a mistake to veto it uh, with that kind of record behind it. So watch for an IPEF bill. But the interesting thing about an IPEF bill that would require IPEF go to the Congress is that one of the complaints you get from the foreign parties is durability. You know, how do we know that the next president is not just going to unravel, you know, like Trump pulled out of TPP? How do we know that the next president, if it's not Biden, not Biden, is just simply going to get out of the whole thing? And if not, then, you know, a few years later, because if it's just an executive agreement, you know, the next executive can can cancel it. So, and that, in turn, has had the effect, I think, of inducing other countries to hold back on their concessions, because why concede anything if, if this is not going to be a lasting document? If the Congress ends up succeeding in its quest to have the thing submitted to Congress for review, uh, that'll make it durable. And if Congress approves it, it'll be in law and it will be durable. The administration has been careful not to propose things that might require sending it to Congress, which makes it a smaller agreement by definition. The other countries have been reluctant to concede things because they're not sure the agreement's going to last. If an IPEF bill passes, it, will, it might change that equation. Because the administration will be in the position of saying, well, it's going to go to Congress regardless. You know, maybe we should actually propose something that's meaningful. Um, maybe I'm just optimistically, blindly optimistic, but you know, we have to grasp the straws in this business. Hold on to hope, Bill. Hold on to hope. Yeah, we need That's both right. Scott's cynicism and your optimism on this podcast, Bill. So I appreciate it. Well, guys, finally, let's have a discussion about OECD Pillar 2. And I'm writing about this topic right now for you, Bill. So allow me to seize this time to shine to run you through Pillar 2 uh, and what it is. It can be understood as 
two blocks of rules designed to ensure that multinational enterprises or MNEs that are making consolidated revenues above 750 million euros be subject to minimum standard tax rates of all forms of income, regardless of jurisdiction. So the first block under that pillar is a subject to tax rule, which focuses on allowing countries to levy adjusted nominal tax rates on interest earned, royalties, and other forms of income. And the second block, the Global Anti-Base Erosion, or GLOBE rules, lays out foundational guidelines that countries can use to develop their domestic taxation system. And GLOBE itself has three parts, the qualifying minimum top-up tax, the income inclusion rule, and the under-tax payment rule. And that's that last part that's particularly at issue here, because what's particular about the UTPR, as it's known, is that it limits an MNE's ability to take deductions to the extent that it's not subjected to the 15% minimum tax rate. Essentially, where the jurisdiction in which a group is headquartered has an effective tax rate below the 15%. So that UTPR provides a backstop ensuring that if an MNE's home country does not have those prior OECD mechanisms to impose the minimum tax, other countries can collect the top of tax instead. They're allowed to swoop in wherever the MNE has a has a footprint. So the House Ways and Means Committee held a hearing on OECD Pillar 2 yesterday, during which the majority decried how, once again, the Biden administration neglected to consult Congress, and additionally argued that the administrative guidance that just came out from the OECD acknowledges that UTPR surtax is both unworkable and unlawful. So this is as good a time as any to have the debate on the trade guys and discuss what all of this is about. So Bill and Scott, can you tell us what your impression is of Pillar 2, especially UTPR, and how its implementation is going to affect U.S. companies? Well, a couple things. Uh, one is the resort to acronyms. Uh, one of the reasons this program exists is to speak in plain language about trade matters, which when we started the program, it was somewhat uncommon. It's still uncommon. There's a lot of jargon in this. But today, my favorite acronym is the, the one you've glossed over so reasonably, UTPR. UTPR stands for undertaxed income. So uh, there's the undertaxed payment rule is what everybody's fighting about. And I love the, the concept of being undertaxed. As a personal example, I would note that I was formerly a resident of Maryland. I'm now a resident of North Carolina. I paid state taxes in both locations and paid them honestly on my income. Maryland tax was, including the county tax, was over 11%. North Carolina tax is 5%. So Thibault, am I now undertaxed? And if so, by how much and why? Never mind. The point is, I, I like tax competition. You're undertaxed. Yes. Pay well, that's, that's what many governments would say, but not the ones that that I swear allegiance to. We have uh, not the ones you vote for. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, in fact, if the taxes go up, I will pay them because I have that level of honesty. But at the same time, tax competition is very healthy. Let me observe that taxes in Europe are substantially higher. The individual's total tax bill is about 45% of GDP. It's 27% here. Not that we have a great system, but the, the tax competition that does go on prevents escalation. Why is that important? And this is from an article in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week entitled, Europeans are becoming poorer. So it talks about European household income and well, it's not keeping up. But the article notes that in the past 15 years, that's since the great financial crisis, the Eurozone economy has grown only 6%. The US economy has grown 82% in total output. All right. So 
something's wrong in Europe, okay, in terms of its ability to grow and provide higher incomes for its citizens. High taxes may be a part of it, but the United States is certainly the better model at this point if you want economic growth, which I've always been kind of fond of. Finally, I would note that we had some concern with taxation without representation sometime in our past and made it so the Congress of the United States and not a tyrant or anybody in the executive branch can raise taxes on citizens. It takes it takes action by the Congress. I don't recall the Congress considering my income or anyone else's in America being undertaxed. So I'll leave it there. Well, here's an area where I think Scott and I disagree, and there aren't very many, but this is one of them. I think there are problems with different tax systems. I think basically Europe has traded growth for security, meaning a social safety net that is more extensive than ours. We've had more growth. Good point. The problem in the United States is that by far the lion's share of that growth has accrued to the top one or two percent of our population and large swaths of the population are either doing only marginally better or in fact are doing worse than they were doing 10 years ago or 20 years ago even. So to me, the the tax issue here is is it, it's not to me tax competition is not necessarily a good thing because what it's led to is a race to the bottom and in the sense that you've got com- countries that are tax havens with minimal tax and you've got western companies american companies as well as others uh, moving to those locations like the cayman islands precisely to avoid tax liability the rationale for this project and the OECD, you know, was asked to do this by the G20. It's not something they just invented themselves. They were asked to do it by the G20, which includes, you know, the United States and a lot of the European company, countries that Scott was talking about, was to try to head off the race to the bottom and try to create, in the case of Pillar 2, a floor so companies would know that they would be paying 15% because that's the floor. And that would provide some certainty into the system. Now, that's an easy thing to say. Actually, implementing that has turned out to be extraordinarily difficult. And there's a lot of many, many details. You've heard Thibault explain some of them, but there's a lot more than that that make implementation of this actually uh, very difficult. And there's a number of issues that are not sorted out yet, one of which is the extent to which the OECD rules, which, by the way, are, are voluntary. I mean, you don't have to do this. Uh, if you do it, you have to do it their way. But if you don't, want to enter into the process, you don't have to enter into the process. It's telling though that 138 countries have signed up for this, including the United States. So it's not, you know, this odd little thing that five or 10 countries are, are driving. But one problem is going to be consistency with bilateral tax treaties. You know, there are networks, uh, most countries have, uh, the United States, I think, has 54 bilateral tax tr- treaties that address some of the same issues that the OECD rules are addressing. So one question, which is not resolved legally and probably will end up in court by somebody, is who gets primacy? Pre-existing tax treaties or does an OECD set of principles override treaties that are, rat- in our case, ratified by the Senate? There are lawyers on both sides of that question. But I, I do think that one of the arguments here, or two of the arguments here, are red herrings. I know Congress is unhappy, but Congress is always unhappy and they're never consulted enough. So and I I will not defend the administration's consultation process. I suspect it's been inadequate. I'm, after all, a creature of the hill and and used to inadequate consultations. But same old, same old. They need to get over it and take steps. And they have tools to insist on more consultation. I think the other red herring is this idea that this is going to be 
this this whole scheme is going to be imposed on the American people without any congressional involvement. If we're going to change our tax laws to accommodate this, if we have to change our tax laws to accommodate this, Congress can't it has to do that. The administration can't do that. Uh, Congress will get its say. If all that is involved here ends up having the United States do something that is already consistent with existing law, then I don't see what the fuss is about. If U.S. law already permits what they want, what the OECD wants, which I gather it doesn't, but if, if it did, okay, no big deal. And, and Congress doesn't really doesn't have anything to complain about because they've already enacted the laws that, that permit this. If what we are doing is inconsistent with the OECD, then at some point in this process, Congress gets to fix it. The president can't fix it on his own and, you know, let him complain, but it would be a lot more useful if they would go about the process of trying to figure out what they want to do and how to comply with it rather than just complain that they're not going to have their say. We found a a place to land where Bill and I agree wholeheartedly, which is I think Congress ought, ought to be responsible for changing my taxes. I think they ought to take into account and they have the power in our constitution and they are accountable to voters. So much rather have the Congress in the driver's seat than some unelected uh, bureaucracy like the OECD, despite American membership. So, so yeah, it's it's also not true that we don't have any influence. We we have a oh I'm important sure. role to play in the OECD, and we were in, intimately involved in in these negotiations. I've got to go back and look at the history of these things because there are different interpretations of what happened and the significance of what happened. The Congressional Republicans' interpretation is that this was all on track in the sense that, that the, uh, the international tax provisions embodied in the Trump tax bill from 2017 were going to be deemed consistent with the OECD rules, and then we wouldn't have to do anything. Yes, they, I think that's right, Bill. They thought that's, they had a deal in yeah, 2017. Yeah, that's their position. I, I, yeah. And their and their position is that the Biden administration walked away from that, and now we're in a position where our rules are no longer in the safe harbor category, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's the only interpretation of what happened. I think the Democratic right. interpretation is that that that's what Trump wanted, but the result of what he was trying to do in 2019 and 2020 was basically to stop the negotiation in its tracks because nobody else was willing to agree to what the what the U.S. position was at the time. And Secretary Yellen came in and Secretary Yellen cut a deal, which I think is what she was supposed to do. And we should probably have a debate about the merits of the deal. I think the Republicans say she gave away the store. I think the Democrats would say, you know, she saved the project. And I think that's going to require a good bit more research before at least I can say something definitive about it. Well, Thank you, Trade Guys, for covering all these three topics with me. Bill, I hope you're still keeping on recovering from prom. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Trade Guys. Okay. Thanks a lot, people. Thanks a lot, Tivo. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.